our fine young ladies. I sure do appreciate her. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We've seen God's instructions to all of us in general at the end of chapter 4. We have seen God's instructions to couples in chapter 5, instructions to wives, instructions to husbands, and we've seen instructions to children, to fathers, to employers, or not employers, employees, and now uh, this evening to employers or to masters. And so Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read one verse here, then we're going to go to two other passages uh, throughout the sermon tonight. Let's start Ephesians 6, verse number 9. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Does anybody need a lesson tonight? Anybody need a lesson? Okay, got everybody covered. So one verse, pretty easy. Um, masters, do the same things unto them for bearing threatening. And we're going to look through not only this verse, but go in depth into what God's instructions would be for those who are masters. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you're the good master, that you model for us the perfect, just example of all relationships. And I pray that we would take your example tonight and transfer that into our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody in here is a, a master of something. Um, even as children grow up, they begin to play act that they're the master, right? Um, the, the three-year-old little girl is the master over her baby doll. And the four-year-old little boy is the master over the family, the family puppy and uh, over his lizard that he finds out in the woods. And uh, the way that we treat uh, begin to treat our things and we begin to treat animals and we begin to treat people is, is kind of a model uh, moving forward of, of how we're going to live our lives. Now, I don't know if, if any of you were mischievous, and maybe you tortured ants when you were kids. Anybody torture ants? Okay, a couple honest people. Um, anybody in here torture cats? Okay, that's sad. I can't believe you do that. Um, <laughs> how many of you have a cat? Have a cat at your house. God bless you. Amen. You're good, good people. All right, we don't have a cat at our house anymore, um, but <laughs> that's a, another story. Um, so anyway, we're getting into the masters here, though. And, and what happens is over time, um, our responsibilities change, and our areas of, of mastery change, and, and what we're over and who we're over change from time to time. But we all need to learn how to be masters, the best way to learn how to be a leader in the Scripture is to be a follower. That's just the most interesting thing. To learn how to be a leader, you have to learn how to be a follower. And if you can learn how to follow authority, specifically God's authority, then you're going to turn out to be a, a pretty decent leader, a stable leader. Now, there are all kinds of leadership books and leadership programs and leadership ideas, but Here's what God has to say to masters. And it starts with uh, him telling them, do the same things unto them. 
So the things that servants were supposed to do are the things masters were supposed to do. And to know that, we have to refresh our memory. So go back to verse number five. And let's, let's see what some of the things were once again. Just reading through this one. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. In singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And so the same traits that you need to have as a follower, you also need to have as a leader. Um, A lot of times we get this idea that if I could just be in charge, I could make everything right. I can make everything work. And uh, you maybe have worked at a place before and the thought crossed your mind, if I were the boss, you know, then, then we would do this. And if I ran the, uh, the drive-in where they sold the, the Cokes and the ice creams, then we would do it this way. And if I ran the corporation, and it, it goes into our lives. Um, sometimes young people begin to think, if I were the mom, I would have done it this way. If I were the dad, I would do it this way. And when they get to those rebellious times in their lives, they've got it all figured out about how it should be done and how it should have worked. And the only cure for that is to have your own kids. And then you can pretty quickly figure that one out. But, um, but we get into this area of, of mastery, and God has some instructions for us. So let's look in your notes tonight. Let's start number one, first thing. Being in charge is never an excuse to treat another person improperly. Being in charge is never an excuse to treat another person improperly. And uh, there are stories throughout the Bible that that I think of when it talks about this. One of them, uh, do you remember the guy who owed a lot to his master? He owed a lot. And they called him in before the judge and said, you need to pay right away. And he fell down on his face, and he cried for mercy. And he said, I can't pay it. I could never pay it. The debt's too big, and there's no way I could ever pay it. And the master forgave him, wiped off the debt, said, you don't owe anything anymore. It's totally canceled. And what did he immediately do? He walks outside of the courtroom, goes and grabs a guy who owes him like a dollar, grabs him by the throat and says, you need to pay me right now. I'm taking it to the judge. And we kind of see the picture of, of how we sometimes act. Um, we have to learn very quickly what this, prince, this first principle is, that there's never an excuse to treat another person improperly. No matter where they're at on the social ladder, no matter where they're at on the employment scheme, um, we should treat other human beings the right way. And uh, I, I noticed in India... Um, the care that uh, our, our missionary in India, Pastor Banwell, the care that he took to treat the lowest people in the caste system with Christian love. It just amazed me um, how he would talk sometimes to, to the people who had nothing. And uh, he sometimes would have to talk to them a little sternly. I have no idea what he said. This is basically, I don't know what he said. But I know that he respected them. And he treated them as his equal. He treated them as a brother or sister in Christ. 
And sometimes in our lives, we, we don't do that the way that we should. And so this is a great principle to start with. Let's look at this next one, the eye of God. The eye of God is on the master just as much as it is on the servant. We've, we've already looked when we saw about servants or employees. We're not supposed to do what we do with eye service, where somebody's watching us, and so we, we work, and we get busy at that point, and we move the mop, or we do the uh, lawnmower, or whatever it is. We wash the dishes because somebody's watching. Um, we're supposed to do it because God sees it all. And uh, the Word of God is very clear that the eye of God sees the master just as much as sees the servant. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4. We'll look at one of the other passages. It's a parallel passage to this. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And verse number 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Here's what the scripture is trying to tell us. No matter what you're the master of, you still have a master. Now, we live in a humanistic world that is trying to throw down to us all the time and shove down our throat that as a man, you don't need God. You can become whatever you want. You can even become like a God yourself, which is a satanic lie from Genesis chapter 3. And so sometimes we buy into this thing, well, if I got to this point in my life, there'd be nobody over me. There'd be no authority over me. And the scripture is very clear that we always have a master. No matter what you're the master of, you always have a master. And here in Colossians 4.1, we, we get this idea of treating people just, treating them equally. And uh, that's, it's not always the easy thing to do. If you've ever been a leader or a master, um, you've made mistakes. Guarantee. Uh, if you've babysat children or you've walked people's dogs and been their master and you yanked them out of the yards or whatever you did, um, you have made mistakes as a leader. We all have. If you're a parent, you've made mistakes. If you're an employer, you've made mistakes. And we understand that, that we're going to make mistakes, and, and we have to do our very best under God to make those things just and equal. But God's giving us these instructions. Now, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to look at this next one in your notes. And there's no blank, so you won't miss anything. Or maybe there is a blank. Yes, there is a blank. So I'll wait till you get there. First Peter chapter 2. We know that Jesus is the model for everything. And here he's the model for us in 1 Peter 2. We say this in the notes. A godly master should be just, but he should govern by love, not terror. He should govern by love, not terror. God does not want us to govern by love, uh, or excuse me, by terror, by fear, by intimidation. He wants us to govern out of love. And Jesus is the model for this. First Peter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, Jesus is the perfect model of not only how to follow, but how to lead. And you think of this, as Jesus walked toward the cross, and he was threatened, he threatened not again. He was the master over everything. And yet he didn't claim authority as he went to the cross. And sometimes we get into these roles in our lives where we feel like we have to claim authority. We have to remind people that we're in charge. And God says you can do it out of love. You don't have to do it out of fear. You don't have to do it out of intimidation. And you begin to see this early on with people who are in charge of anything. That the two biggest temptations are this. When there's a mistake, to blame it on the people you're in charge of. Right? When there's a mistake, and you're the President of the United States, it's the people's fault. Right? It's the Americans' fault. They just don't get it. They're too dumb. Uh, you 300 million people out there, you've messed up. Not my fault. Right? You could play it that way. Um, so you kind of blame other people. Or when something good happens, you take the credit. Right? When something good happens, it had nothing to do with anybody else. You did it all. Now, both of those mentalities are completely against God's word. Um, God wants us, when there's a problem, we need to step up to the plate. My favorite quote um, from Harry S. Truman, in fact, he had it on his desk, a sign that said, the buck stops here. I just like that in authority. Um, you're either the authority or you're not. You're either the master the whole time when things are good and when things are bad, or you're not. And he, he had it on his desk. The buck stops here. And when there was a problem in any department of the government, it stopped at his desk. And you know, that's the way we've got to be in life with responsibility. But then when it comes to the other side of privilege, we have to be willing to share. Um, I love the Apostle Paul's model of this in the Scriptures. Anytime there was something good that was happening in a church, you know what he always did? He always listed like five people who were a blessing. Um, Stephanus and Onesiphorus and Gaius, that's John who mentioned that. But all these different people are listed. In fact, um, look over here quickly, if you would, to Romans chapter 16. I want to show you this. Romans chapter 16. And if you've ever uh, done our discipleship program, you've actually studied this particular chapter in depth in one of your lessons. And it talks about the role of women in the church. But I want you to notice, as he gets uh, to the end of this letter to the Romans, how many people he commends. Look at this. He says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, at, which is at Centria." that you receive her in the Lord as become a saint, that you assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succor, of, that means she's been a helper of many, and of myself also. Uh, next, greet Priscilla and Aquila. And he talks about all the things that they've done. Um, verse 5, salute my well-beloved Epaeneus, 
Verse 6, greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Uh, salute Andronicus and Junia. Greet Amplius and salute Urbane. And you see how the list goes on and on? Paul understood that in the local church and in each of these mission works that he was a part of, that there were a host of people who were involved. And sometimes people show up at a church for the first time or for a few weeks, and they think there's only one or two people who do everything. And they have no idea. At Centennial, the body of Christ is at work. Um, You show up here on a Sunday morning, we've got Sunday school teachers who are already in their rooms greeting kids. We've got life group leaders who invested, prayed throughout the week and have studied a lesson and are ready and thinking and, and caring. We've got um, greeters and we've got hostesses and we've got um, ushers who are helping people. And, and we even have something that you maybe didn't know about. Here in the auditorium, we have some sleeper cells going on. Uh, I don't remember what their formal title is. Anybody remember? What is it? Lurkers? Is it lurkers? Minglers. Yeah, we have minglers. Um, every Sunday morning, we have four minglers who are assigned a section of the auditorium to purposely go and mingle as part of the body of Christ. Um, we have people who have already set up for God's kids and who are working at beginner church and people who are in the nursery and people who are in the sound booth and people who are ready to play music and the choir's back getting ready to sing. And the body of Christ is at work. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, guess who's supposed to get all the glory? Not me, and not any of you, and not the body, the Savior is. And when we treat the things we master in that fashion, that's how God gets the glory. Here, here's basically after you look, how you have to look at it as a master in your home, or your business, or your office, or wherever you're at, to say this. Anything bad that happens, that's on me. Anything good that happens, that's on him. That's the way it has to look, right? If, if there's a mistake, that's my fault. But if there's anything good that happened, that's because of Christ. And because of the people who help in so many areas. We have Sunday school teachers who have been in the same place, the same room, for year after year after year after year, faithful, loving, caring. And, and you know, there's a lot of people who do things around here. There are 30 or 40 people that, 30 or 40 people that showed up yesterday to crawl under an old trailer and put bricks under there and to, to move bricks that we're going to have to move again and to do all these different things that the body of Christ does. We could all, in the things that we master, write our own, our own Romans 16. We could. We could say, we got to salute this guy and think of this guy and this lady and this person. And we all have people who've helped us and we should acknowledge that. Because a godly master masters out of love, not terror. Um, I remember when I was a kid that the church I grew up in, um, God bless them, they, they kind of ruled by intimidation. Yeah, there was a lot of ruling by fear that took place. And uh, do things like this. They say, How many of you going out this week to pass out tracks? Stand up right now. Right? So you get five people that stand up. How many more of you going out? A few more people stand up. They're looking around like, 
I don't really want to go, but I feel like I'm going to have to stand anyway. And so then you either had people show up who didn't want to go, who were there, or people who lied about that they were going. And, and you got this intimidation thing going on. Listen, God wants us to do what we do for the right reason. And that reason is because the love of Christ constrains us to do what we're supposed to do. And by the way, it just if anybody's ever had anybody stand up for something, I'm not saying that's wrong or that's a bad deal. Um, we just have to be careful we do things out of love, not terror. Next one is this. Injustice toward a servant will be overseen by a just God. And he will treat the master just like he would treat any other person. Let's go back to Ephesians 6. One of the phrases that you see in the Bible quite often is this phrase. God is no respecter of persons. What that means is God does not care what your social status is. You will be judged according to your sins or his blood, period. It's the only choice. God is not a respecter of persons. And uh, sometimes when we get into roles of leadership, we begin to think that we can be unjust to people and nobody will worry about it, nobody will have to take care of it, but God will take care of it. Look back at Ephesians 6, 9. We, we see some of the things we've already seen. Do the same things unto them. Forbearing threatening, so do it out of love. Knowing that your master is also in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. So God, he sees it all, and he's going to judge it all. He's going to be just in how he treats people. And we should not, we should not treat people in a way where we use them. And we, we all fall into this trap. I remember when I, I was first a pastor, I was 25 years old, and my wife was very much younger than that. Um, she was only, when I became a senior pastor the first time, I think she was 21 or 22 years old. And, uh, and we had people coming into church, and we only had 30 or 40. And so if anybody new came in the door, it was like this general cheer that went up. Um, kind of this quiet subtle cheer. Nobody did it out loud, but they're all like, whoa, new people, new people, you know? And so we, in, we inadvertently scared people off left and right because everybody was so pumped. We'd have the closing prayer and we'd swarm them like ants. We thought, they probably thought that they were going to be dragged back to the ant hill, right? And everybody's asking, them, where'd you come from? And how many kids do you have? And what can you do in the church? And and we're kind of getting this thought process that you showed up here, God assigned you to come here to help us. Right? What can you do for us? And over time and over growth and maybe a little maturity, what we came to realize is this. God didn't send them here to help us. God sent them here so we can help them. And when we help them, it helps us. You know, when people show up at Centennial, um, hopefully we have that right mentality that, that God has sent them here so we can love them. And so we can care for them. One of the things I pray every Sunday morning before I come out here is that God will send us new people today that we can love and teach them salvation and disciple for his glory. Because God wants us to help them 
to love them. And we should not be thinking for what we can get out of other people. Um, I've been in churches before where they're always looking for an advantage. You know, can I give you my card? I'm a real estate agent. Can I get to do this? Can I do this? And, and that's not the mentality. God wants us to have a loving environment where we're sharing and we're caring for each other. And, and so in the role of master, we have to watch out for this one. Here's another one. When we all realize that we have a common master, we will act toward others as we want God to act toward us. When we get this idea that I'm the big cheese and you're the little cheese and and that's just how it is, then we probably won't treat people right. But when we get this idea that we're all little cheeses and there's one huge monstrous cheese, and not to demean God at all, God is the universal authority. And when we put ourselves under that authority and say, God, you've allowed me to be in this role or this position or this place in my life, help me to treat other people as I want to be treated. Help me to love other people as I want to be loved. And that's an important principle from God's word, from this scripture. Next one. The worker is never to be treated as a thing or property. He is a soul for which Christ died. Now this was written at a time. This was written at a time when men were still sold as slaves. When people were still sold at markets. And you know, historically, for hundreds and a thousand years before this scripture was written, people had been sold. Do you know what finally turned human slavery away? Christianity. Christianity. As Christianity spread, and people who called themselves Christians had to come face to face with slavery, you know what they figured out? It was wrong. It was immoral. Shouldn't have been done. And they had to treat people as human souls. Not as a thing, not as property. And we have to be careful that we do that as well, if we're masters. Next one is this. No one will ever be admitted into heaven because he is an employer. And no one will ever be condemned to hell because he is an employee. When you die and stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? I was president of IBM. I was the head chief of media at NBC News. Probably not a good thing to say, heaven's gates, but... um, That's not going to work. There's nothing about any role that we have on this earth that translates to heaven. The only thing that gets us there is the blood of Jesus Christ. And and so this principle from Ephesians 6, 9 is showing us the, the difference in this role of master and servant. Next one. The master servant relationship should be one of mutual confidence. If you look at this, in verse number 9 again masters do the same things unto them for bearing threatening there should be a love relationship a mutual confidence Um, somebody still has to be in charge but it should be like a teacher student or mentor follower relationship where there's a mutual confidence there's a trust of each other Um, if we're dealing with Christians the master should be able to trust the servant 
and the servants should be able to trust the master. Now, knowing that we trust God entirely. But there, there needs to be a mutual confidence here. And as we get ready to close out, I want to go to the book of Philemon because this shows uh, really a, a perfect model of what God wants us to look at as we look at being masters. And there are so many places we could go with this lesson tonight. But I want to go to Philemon. Philemon's a tiny little book. It comes after Titus and it comes before Hebrews. Let's just read a little bit of it. Not a very big book. Here's Paul, who's writing from prison. Here's what he says. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon. Philemon was a rich landowner, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. So Philemon was not only a rich landowner, but he was also a house pastor. Had a, a church in his house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get through the character of Philemon, him talking about, uh, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such and one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now we get to verse 10, and we find out why he really wrote the letter. All right, he's, it's not just a how-do-you-do letter. He's got a point. Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son... Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. All right? Now, this does not, this is not saying Paul had a child in prison. Okay? What it's saying is he had a spiritual child in prison. Onesimus became a Christian under Paul's leadership in the prison. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He was a bad employee for whatever reason. And Philemon, we don't know. He was a Christian, but he may have been a lousy master. This may, he may have been a master before he became a Christian and been a lousy master. We're not sure about it all. But we do begin to see what Paul asks him. Here's what he says about Onesimus in verse 11. Which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is mine own bowels. And so he sent Onesimus now back to Philemon, probably with this letter in his hand. And when the, he knocked on the door and the door opened, he was like this. Read the letter first. He probably had a post-it note on his head. Read letter first. All right? he, he didn't want him to judge him before the letter was read. And uh, you know, when we have Christian employees or Christian people who are underneath us, you know what the post-it note on their head says? Child of God, handle carefully. Love this person. Don't wound this person. Because if we're not careful, that naturally happens in a master-servant relationship. A servant can easily be wounded by a master. 
And as Christians, we have to take great care that we don't wound them. Verse 13, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Here's what we say in your notes. The book of Philemon is a beautiful letter written on behalf of Onesimus, a slave. It shows the ultimate value of a brother beloved. No matter what the role is of the person underneath you, if you're a master, your first role is their soul. Your first role is to think of them as a a child of God, a creation of God. And he says in verse 17, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how much thou owest unto me, even on thine own self besides. And, And so it's a wonderful letter about this slave about this servant, about this man who had failed in his duties. And yet, this letter to say, could you accept him back? Could he be a part of what you're doing again as a brother beloved? And we, we need to think of people that way. Even in our home, it's so difficult sometimes to balance this. <laughs> because if you're a parent, God has given you a role. Um, God has not called you to be their buddy. God's called you to be their parent. And we've gotten into a very bad place in the United States because we have a lot of parents who are seeking to be their kid's buddy when they're three or four or five years old. And uh, you've got to be the parent. That's the first thing. But at the same time, if your child is a child of God, they're also a brother beloved. They're also a sister beloved in Christ. And they have that post-it note on their forehead Handle carefully. This is a child of God. And anybody that we're in charge of, especially if they're a child of God, we have to handle them carefully in that matter. And if they're not a child of God, what better way to be a testimony than to treat them as Jesus would? To be a testimony for them. When we stand before God at the judgment seat, we're going to be judged according to our works. Not according to our sins, but according to our works. And for many of us, that means we're going to have lost opportunities we're going to have to answer for. People that we could have helped, who were underneath us in some way in life, that we could have helped, but we lost our testimony with them for whatever reason. Like I said, beginning of the lesson, if you're in charge of anything, you've messed up. Or you have. And you wish you had another shot on some of those things. And I'm the same way. But we, what we have to resolve is to say this, God, anytime you place a person under my authority, I'm going to try to act toward them as Jesus would. I'm not going to try to manipulate them. I'm not going to use them for my own things or ideas. And in the local church, we have to be very careful 
that we treat each other with that same type of love, with a mutual respect and a mutual agreement of God's love. And so those are God's instructions to masters. 